Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. This is our last week in, um, in this series in 1 Peter, and so I am going to... Um, to read the word of the Lord. If you're, if you're new, we, we started doing this coming out of COVID. It's a church tradition, and it's, it's really just a way of honoring the Lord and that these are the words that matter. It's his words and, um, and being grateful that he has given us these words. So First uh, uh, Peter chapter 5, verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, Be watchful, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can have a seat. That first line, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Um, and so it's a way of wrapping up this letter to the folks that Paul, Peter is writing to, um, but also it's something that you seem to hear like a lot in the Bible. I mean, it's, it's, it rings uh, similar to like a bunch of other passages in Scripture, and it almost sounds like covenantal language where God is making a promise to us. My, um, my first, probably the first verse I think I ever memorized was um, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. And what I just quoted is different than what's on the screen because I memorized it in the NIV and I can't like unmemorize it because it got so far in there. But trust in the Lord with all, all of your heart. One of the messages in this was, um, in this series was about put away all malice and all slander. And so I just spent that day talking about all and how hard all is. Like we're willing to give some, you know, like some is easy. Most That makes sense. We could probably do that all. Like, that's a lot. And so trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. I'll be honest, the older I get, the the more I think there's some things I just don't understand anything about at all. And there's other things I think I understand really well and I should write books about so that other people can share my understanding, you know. But lean not on your own understanding. Uh, In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he'll make your path straight. It's covenantal language. And it's not saying you do the right thing, and then God's going to bless you. It's not health and wealth. It's this is how life works. This is how life works, because God is smarter than us. Um, Or Psalm 37, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Uh, I love that. Befriend faithfulness. Be friends with faithfulness. (laughs) Be buddies with faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Because when you delight yourself in the Lord, you and the Lord want the same things. And so he is going to make those things happen. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. It's not too different, I don't think, than than Genesis chapter 3. And he puts Adam and Eve in the garden, says, here's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, And so that, you know, that 
it's hard because we teach our kids good and evil. We want them to know good and evil. But he's saying, like, your capacity for good and evil is limited. Just trust me, and I will give you what you need in relationship with you. Trust in me. But if you grab that for yourself and try and pretend you have it all figured out, um, surely you die. And again, it's like covenantal. He's just saying this is the way that life works. This is the way that it is. Uh, and so here, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, so that, so you don't get in the way of him exalting you at the proper time by trying to exalt yourself all the time, you know? Uh, and so it's just a, and so here's what, I'm going to talk about that for a minute, humbling yourself and what that means. And then I think he gives you two, you know, two pictures of what that means practically in your life, what it looks like to humble yourself under him. And then a, and then a picture, like a vision of of what it, him exalting you is going to look like. So let me start with this, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And I'll, I'm going to start, has anybody watched the show 1883? Two, three, okay. It was good, yeah. Have you watched the end? Okay, good, because I'm about to ruin it for you. Uh, it's on Paramount. It's, um, it's like the prequel to Yellowstone, which I watched a couple episodes of and couldn't get into, but it's set in 1883. And it's a, it's a, um, it's like taking some migrant, some immigrants uh, from Texas. They want to go to Oregon, and so they pay these folks to take them to Oregon. It's about like getting there, and so it's the West, and it's getting a, you know, getting a, attacked by bandits and conflicts with Indians and, and just nature and all this stuff. And the the cup, the main couple is um, Tim McGraw and Faith Hill, who are like a legit couple, right? They're married. And they're singers, but they're actors, but they're really good. I mean, I was surprised at how good they were at acting, and, uh, and I don't know much about acting. And, um, and it's really well-written, and it's scenic, it's beautiful. And so maybe the main character, the one that kind of narrates everything underneath, is their daughter, who, uh, who's like 18, she's, a little, she's got a free spirit, a little bit wild, tough, um, uh, beautiful girl, and she, and so she's just kind of the drama in the thing. And then, and then towards the end, she gets shot with an arrow trying to protect the the group in her liver, and so it takes her a few weeks to die. She dies. Okay, so there you go. But it's not that much of a surprise, but it is because they killed her off. But he, she's so great that I wouldn't be surprised if they brought her back from the dead because of how they present her. But her, the last scene with her is. Her with her dad in Montana, if you watch Yellowstone, on whatever becomes their homestead, and he's leaning back against a tree, and he's got his daughter leaning back against him, and she is in the last you know, stages of her life. And then she passes, and she gives her last soliloquy, and she talks about heaven. So this is what she says about heaven. She says, there's a moment when your dreams, and, and this, she doesn't talk like that. She talks like this. So there's a moment when your dreams and your memories merge together and form a perfect world. How is that? It's not good, I can tell. Yeah, okay, I'll stop. That is, that is heaven, and each heaven is unique. It is the world of you. The land is filled with all you will do, and the sky is your imagination. My heaven is filled with good horses and open plains and wild cattle and a man who loves me. It is always sunrise in my world, and there are no storms. I am the only lightning. I know death now. I've seen it. It had no fangs. It smiled at me, and it was beautiful. I, uh, over the past few years, I've thought about heaven and hell probably as much theologically as I've thought about anything, maybe over forever, because hell is so hard. 
It's so difficult, but the more I think about it, read about it, pray about it, um, talk about it, the more it makes sense to me. Uh, because, um, because if we live this life with no concern for God, it makes sense to me that God's going to let us live the next one without God, and that'll be hell. And so when she talks about <laughs> heaven, I think this is the popular conception. I've said this a few times if you've been listening well. I've said this a few times. We think heaven is the place where we get to go play golf anytime we want to because we get whatever we want in heaven. And she just says it. Like, this is a popular culture, really popular series, and she puts it right out there. It is the world of you. That's our popular conception. You get whatever you want whenever you want it. Um, and, and then she says, each heaven is unique. And this is the problem. Is like heaven, they put it out like it doesn't work if it's the world of you because everyone has to have their own heaven because I don't want the world of you. I want the world of me. So if it's the world of me, then you don't want to be in my heaven and I don't want to be in your heaven, right? Like it doesn't make sense unless we have eight billion little heavens. Uh, and I just don't think that, I just, I just don't, I don't, it's delusional to me uh, to think that. And she has a man in her heaven. And so presumably she is his heaven. Did I say that right? And he's her heaven, maybe. And then I thought, that's how marriage starts all the time, right? We think I've won the person that we can share our heaven together. And that works for a few years at best. <laughs> Months, probably weeks, possibly, and occasionally hours before you're like, this ain't heaven, you know? And so you humble yourself under the mighty hand of marriage. And that's a great thing for you. It's a great thing for you. But that's the only way that it works. And so this, each heaven, is the, it's the world of you. Um, that is pride. That's, it's, it's all about me. Uh, and this is the air we breathe. And that's why it struck me when she said it. It's the air we breathe in our culture. I mentioned this book that I read where a guy talked about moving through like political man and economic man, and now we're in therapeutic. We're therapeutic people, and that's, therapy's great, but it's the point of that is like we're all so into our feelings that that's, it's about being happy. Like that's the end goal of, of everything. Um, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God is surrendering to yourself to something greater than that. It's surrendering your needs. It's surrendering your wants and your desires to his, trusting that they are better than yours, and that you have reason to fundamentally distrust yours. And he says, so that at the proper time, his timing, he'll exalt you. Uh, and, and so he'll exalt you, which is, the exaltation is at the, like at the core of pride. I mentioned this uh, last week, that, that um, in Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis's chapter, the, it's called The Great Sin, and it's about pride, is is one of my favorite chapters in any book, um, just single chapters, because I think it's so good on this. He says, he says, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. So what you want to get clear is that pride is essentially competitive. It's competitive by its very nature, while the other vices are competitive only, so to speak, by accident. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer 
or better looking than others. If everyone became equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It's the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Um, I was listening to a sermon about something else this, this week, and a guy gave a, um, he talked about an experiment that he had, he's talking about the therapy of, or the psychology of conversion, he talked about an experiment that he'd seen where they had people sit down next to each other, each with a computer screen in front of them, and it was a simple exercise of counting like dots would come, would go move down the screen, and you'd have to count the dots as they came down, and you'd get rewarded for how accurate you were in your counting. So somewhere between 50 and $120 based on how accurate you were. And then after you got rewarded for your counting, you found out what the person next to you got rewarded for their counting, and they had you hooked up to a brain scan thing, and they, they scanned the ventral striatum, which I guess probably has something to do with dopamine, and it's where it measures, like, it's activated when you get rewarded for something. And so they measured it, and, sh you know, sure enough, when you, when you found out that you got it right, it lit up, and it, it lit up more based on how much you got rewarded, whether between the $50 and $120, um, and it didn't light up if you got everything wrong. It lit up the most, it lit up the most, when you found out what the other person got, if you got more than the other person, that's when it lit up the most. Um, and so that's like, it's all this right here. It's pride, right? I gave a sermon years ago um, about the garden, and, and people brought this one up for a few years, where I talked about pride and, and the Garden of Eden and how the devil, you know, there's a few passages in the Old Testament that talk about um, Satan was an angel that ascended to the throne of God, which is pride. He wanted the exaltation that only God has, but he wanted it for himself, and so God cast him out. It's by pride that the devil became the devil. That's the temptation he gave to Adam and Eve. You can be like God. You can be exalted. And, um, and I talked about how what we want in our life is people to look at us and say, whoa, you know, that's pretty impressive. Uh, they're, they're pretty impressive the way they look, uh, the way they talk, the, what they drive, what they do for a living, whatever it is. And what we want to avoid at all costs is people looking at us and saying, ooh, you know, <laughs> like, it's too bad that happened to them. Uh, and it's this. And so when they, they eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and God comes and says, what happened? Adam says, the woman that you gave me, she did it. You know, not my fault, it's hers. And she says, the serpent did it. And they have two kids, Cain and Abel, and they bring their offerings to God, and Abel's offering is acceptable, but Cain's offering is not acceptable. And so what does Cain do? He eliminates the competition, so he doesn't have to get, oh, <laughs> you know? It's, this is who we are. Uh, we want the woe, we want to avoid the oh. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he will exalt you. And so humility is like making the ultimate competition between you and God, and you lose that like every time, all the time, you know? And when you start looking up instead of around, then any comparison we make between us and anybody else like is, is a super minor, and we know temporal, and we're only looking at a part of things. Like we're all the same. Uh, and he, at the proper time, you're surrendering your exaltation to him uh, when he says it's right. That is, it's hard to live there. It's a hard thing to do. Now, he, in the passage, I think, talks about two specific ways this will impact us. And one of them is anxiety. So humility will lead to a peaceful mind and spirit. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting, and these are tied together, casting all your anxieties on him, because 
He cares for you. Um, I, have, I have four teenagers. I don't know how many people ever have four teenagers at the same time. Uh, I really like it. Uh, it's been fun having, it's been a lot funner than, I mean, they te- like, it seems like it's a scary thing to have teenagers, and it's been a great thing. Teaching teenagers to drive is a little scary. So if you ask my kids about Pocatello, Idaho, I think they'll know what happened there. Uh, two things really happened that were significant for our family. One was we just, we were on a trip a couple years ago out west and driving, and we'd been in Salt Lake City with my brother-in-law, and it's the first time we played Settlers of Catan, and uh, we were late to that game, but we went to a Walmart in Pocatello after lunch, and we bought Settlers, and we've been playing it ever since, you know, so that was good. But when we got back on the highway after, do you remember this? After... Uh, after buying that, my son was on his permit, my oldest at the time, and he didn't realize that there was a semi-18-wheeler Mack truck barreling up beside us until it was three inches in the passenger side. And I was like, get over! We ended up on the shoulder, you know, on the rumble strips or whatever they are, and I just thought, we, there was almost family of six dies in car accident in Pocatello, Idaho. Um... Not much will stress you out, like teaching teenagers to drive. And I have good drivers. Uh, we're two and a half drivers in. We've had no tickets. We've had no accidents that I know about. And you find out about that stuff because your insurance rates go through the roof when it happens. Um, but it's stressful. I was Abigail and I were driving, um, and she's great. We were driving a couple weeks ago, and I was in the passenger seat. And where, was my, where were my hands when she's driving? Yes, on that little handle up there. Why is that handle there? It's, it's, so she looks over at me, and she's like, Dad. I'm like, oh, sorry. <laughs> we get anxiety when we're not driving, right? In life, we get anxiety Uh, when we're not driving. When you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, you surrender control to him at all levels of your life. Uh, Your decision-making. Your, uh, and that can mean so many, it can mean a million different things. And my guess is when I preach, like, there's some, there's two or three specific things that come to your mind that he wants right now you to surrender. And you're you're, you've got, you're like, you're resisting. You, have, you don't even have that because you're still in the driver's seat and he wants it. Um, it could be your body. It could be your money. It could be your career. It could be your relationships. It could be your time. And there's a lag time between when you surrender something to him and when you find out if that was a good decision or not, right? Like when resolution comes. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, <laughs> he'll tell you that it worked out. And that's like the anxiety zone. Uh, where you have a chance to think this is completely out of control, um, you know, if to, to me and my daughter driving, she's been driving for like three months and I've been driving for a long, long time. This would go better if I was in the driver's seat even though she's a good driver, you know? <laughs> and that's how we feel about God. When we, hum- when we really humble ourselves, I think you can surrender to him and not be humble. You can do it because you're supposed to. When you humble yourself under the mighty and mighty is probably the key word for that. Like the mightier the hand of God that you've humbled yourself under, 
the less anxiety that you're going to have because you legit believe that he knows what he's doing better than you know what you're doing. Uh, when we haven't surrendered all, that's when we're, we got our hand on the handle because we're just not sure um, that God's not going to screw this up somehow. And it becomes anxiety. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, casting all of your anxieties on him. What would it be like to legit be able to cast all of your anxieties on him? That's an, an invitation. Um, a word for anxiety in the Greek means to divide or to draw in different directions. To divide or to draw in different directions. And I thought that's perfect. The Old English, it comes from a word worgen, which means to strangle, which is also perfect. Humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God puts us in a place where we can cast all of our anxieties on him. The next, probably the other first verse that I memorized was Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be anxious for nothing, um, but in all things, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Again, I memorized it in a different translation, um, but it's stuck there forever. Uh, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, with thanksgiving present your requests to God. And there is a peace that he has, which will, it's a military term, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Where have you cast your anxieties? I think, um, you know, worry is a way of casting them on ourselves. Um, my old boss once talked about how worry is a form of negative meditation. It's meditation, but on a negative thing. He said it's like a cow chewing its cud. And I think we all wrestle with that. You can cast your anxieties, uh, and, you, and, you sh and it's useful to have a therapist help you work through some things because sometimes you can't, you can't untie it until you get it out there. But you can become dependent upon a therapist, and you want a therapist that's going to help you cast your anxieties on the Lord. Um, you can cast your anxieties onto other people, and often that comes in the form of anger. I mean, you're anxious about something, and that frustration becomes anger towards the people or frustration towards them. You can cast it into your work. Um, you can mask them with distraction. Uh, you can cast them into substance. Uh, he invites you and it's what humility looks like to cast them onto the Lord with the caveat because he cares for you the invitation isn't like a it's not like a guilt or a shame that you've been carrying them around but just a gentleness where he invites you to give them to him Jesus in Matthew 11 said come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and I'm humble in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He invites you to that, to rest, which is a 
think in many ways the opposite of the anxiety that divides or draws us in so many different directions. The second thing that I think he says in here is that humility involves a commitment to live in tension with our world. So when we humble ourselves unto the Lord, it's going to put us in a place uh, where we have to be sober-minded and we have to be watchful. For your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in the faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So he says you have an adversary. Whether you like it or not, you have an adversary. Um, every time I, I talk about the devil, which isn't super often, I feel like I always have to acknowledge, especially for folks that are new to church or newish to church or whatever, that it, it always sounds a little bit crazy when you start talking about the devil. And I think the devil loves that. Uh, so I'm going to ask this question, and I've asked this before. How many of you have had either you or somebody that, that is close, you're close enough to that you trust them implicitly has had like an, an experience with the supernatural. Like you just can't explain it naturally, so it's some supernatural thing. And that supernatural leans to the, the evil side of things. How many people have, you've either had the experience or somebody like super close to you has had it. Yeah, I think at least half the hands are up. Every time I do that, half to two-thirds of the hands go up. So it's crazy in our culture to talk about the devil, but half to two-thirds of us either had that experience or we have somebody that's close enough to us that we trust them implicitly, that's had some type of interaction that is unexplainable, like supernatural, and it's been with something evil. Honestly, it does not make sense to me the vast majority of people believe in a supernatural good, believe in angels. But it's harder when it gets to the devil. And like I said, I think the devil loves this. I think it's a scheme of the devil that we think that's crazy. Um, and it gives him more room to work. Uh, it doesn't make sense to believe in spiritual good, but to not believe in spiritual evil when we see so much evil obviously at work in our world. Paul says to the Ephesians, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's a real thing. And what's hard about it is it's, I guess it's, I don't know what shadow boxing is, but I think that's what it is. Like, you just don't know where it is. You don't know what to do, you know? Um, and I think when we deny it, then, and why this verse is so helpful is because we tend to wrestle against what we can see, against the people that we view as our ideological enemies in some way, instead of wrestling what Paul says we ought to wrestle against, which is resisting the spiritual evil that's at work around us, that the people are subject to in some way, shape, or form. And so we misdirect our energy and, and end up with adversaries that we don't need to have as adversaries. And so he's saying... You humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. You surrender things to him. You're going to end up feeling that resistance in ways that you wouldn't have to feel it if you didn't humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Uh, one commentary said, life, is, life in this world doesn't become hard until we become Christians. I don't totally believe that, but, but in some ways I do. Uh, you know, There's a lot of people over the years that have come to faith in Jesus at the church, and then suddenly things got really hard in their life. You know, and they're like, wait a second, I thought when I followed Jesus, things were supposed to get easier. And in some ways they do, for sure, but in other ways they don't, because now you're resisting some things that are going on around us. Again, in Ephesians, Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, 
following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of rash, wrath like the rest of mankind. We were all just kind of going along with the flow of this world. 18, that thing at the end of 1883, what bugs me so much about it is that it seems just so natural and it's so winsome. And yeah, that's, no, it's not. It's like anti-everything that God says, you know? I put out in the weekly this week, I put a link to a podcast that talks about catechizing. If you have children, about catechizing your children, which is really just bringing up your children in the faith. And the first point he makes, and I forget what movie it is, but he has this audience go through um, the plot of a movie and says, what's the message that the directors of the movie are trying to catechize your children into? Because every movie they watch is trying to catechize them into something. Everyone is evangelizing us about something. I met a woman, um, her, her daughter plays with my daughter at, at Enloe, and so we got talking after, um, after a meeting, and I'd, I'd known her daughter, but had never met the parents, so we're talking. Turns out she graduated from my alma mater, the same year I did. And so that was, I'd never met someone down here that had done that. So then we got talking, and we ended up talking about Nicaragua, and she said, yeah, we worked there as translators for a while. And I was like, yeah, I've been a pastor at church, and I've been down there a bunch of times because we have a, some folks that do mission work down there. And she said, yeah, we were, we were down there as translators, and, you know, people are trying to convert people. And I'm like, we should have dinner. You know, like, we should sit down and talk about this, because you, you're clearly trying to convert me to something while you're talking about that. Like, you're trying to convert me to thinking that we shouldn't convert people to something, even in being bold enough, and I appreciate it, to say it in the first conversation we've ever had, you know? Like, everyone's trying to catechize someone into something, and you, you start following Christ, and it's going to involve resistance, and that's not fun. Uh, it's easier to live like everything's fine. Anybody ever had your home invaded? Uh, does that change your life? Like, in, I have, we haven't had that happen. I'm on next door a bit. Um, this is a distraction of mine. And people will talk about, someone la just last night was like, my car got stolen in a neighborhood not too far away. And now security camera pictures of people rifling through the cars. And that's happened a few times to us. But I don't like the fact that someone's been in my car. Now I have like security cameras of this, uh, the other day, someone coming up to their door at 3.30 in the morning and knocking on it, and everyone's like, don't open it, you know, don't ever open it. Um, and then other people talking about actual home invasions, and that'll freak you out when someone invades your space. We've, so we've never had that. The closest we've had to that is, um, if Johnny's in here, close your ears, is I got underneath the house to spray for bugs a few years ago, and there was a snake under there. Didn't go well for the snake. It was a little snake, to be fair. But every time I go under there, I think I'm going to find the big snake from whence the little snake came. And it's not a big crawl space, you know. It's going to be a battle. Uh, but it's going to be a battle. No snake is living underneath my house. Like, we don't want that. We don't want people in our space. And so there's a sober-mindedness that comes along with that resistance that you are called to be on guard with that all the time, and not just to indulge in, in, in that God's given us all things richly to enjoy, you know? Um, thank God. But be on guard at all times because we have an adversary, and he's prowling around like a lion looking for someone to devour. Um, I'll never fret preaching through Job a few years ago thinking, 
man, Satan would kill your children if God let them. Like, that's what he wants. So resist, resist. And so let me go through the last bit of this finally and talk about what he's promising. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. And so those four words are similar, but they have a little bit different connotation. Um, the first one is used in Mark for disciples repairing their fishing nets. So one pastor writes, after we've suffered a little while and taken some hits and gotten knocked around, the God who called us into his eternal glory will repair us and he'll restore us. We will not be damaged goods. We will not carry psychological scars. We will be happy and whole, and to that end, God himself promises to make us strong, firm, and steadfast. He is on a personal mission to prove a point that not even the devil can debate. That is, that the power is God's forever and ever, and that power is on our side. And God's going to finish that job. He's going to confirm us. That idea is like the architectural term of buttressing something, you know, like just... I don't know what buttresses are, but I think I know what they are. But they support stuff. They gave the picture of um, Moses when in the Old Testament um, there is a battle that they're fighting. And, and as long as his arms are up, they're going to be winning the battle. And if his arms come down, they're not. And his arms get tired, so Aaron and her have to hold his, hands up, or his arms up. So they buttress his arms. And so God is going to, he's going to buttress you. He's going to strengthen you. Um, when Peter, um, on the, the night when Jesus gets arrested, when Peter says, I'll never deny you, I'll die before I do that. And Jesus says, well, we'll see, you know. But he says, but, but you're going you're gonna to come back from it. And then when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Strengthen them. The guy writes that this is, we will be filled with bodily strength. It's like bodily discipline through exercise, which toughens up your body, replacing fat with muscle. It's like an Olympic athlete who's in training because he's shooting for the gold. He knows that's where he's headed. He knows that's the purpose of all his pain and difficulty. And God promises that's what's going to happen at the proper time and establish. And that's a word that just means to lay a foundation for a building. In suffering, we figure out what's superficial in life, what's unnecessary. We were stripped of all excess baggage and driven into the one thing that can really build our lives on, Jesus himself. Suffering tells us what's superfluous and what's essential. Man, that's true, right? It stinks that that's what it takes sometimes, but that's what it takes sometimes. And so he's going to get that and establish it. The end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded, it had been established on the rock. Um, I'm going to ask the band to come back up. And I'm just going to finish off. I'm going to ask you guys just to close your eyes and bow your heads and let me talk to you for a minute. This is the end of a letter to a bunch of believers that I presume to be young believers because everyone's a young believer because the church is so young. In modern-day Turkey, then Asia Minor, isolated, probably not feeling like they're a part of something huge, Um, probably suffering some persecution that Peter knows or God knows is about to get a whole lot worse. And sometimes that's 
Maybe, maybe a lot of times. That's what it, it feels like following Jesus. Like it's a little bit too much. Like you can't see where he's taking you. Like you're all alone. Like the pressure and the suffering will never relent. As I said, this is a message that I feel like is repeated at different places in the Bible. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. So that, don't get in his way, so that at the proper time, he will restore you and confirm you and strengthen you and establish you. It is a promise that he will. So wherever you are right now, in whatever it is that feels like it will not relent, take this promise from the Lord. Continue to humble yourself under his mighty hand. Realize it's mightier than you will ever imagine. Cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Resist the adversary that's around us, but know that God has already defeated him, and that battle is won, and he knows what he's doing. And give him all. I thought a lot this week about how um, at various times in my life, it's felt like I've given him all. You know, when I stepped out of a corporate job and came into ministry, that was all. That was everything, you know. But then within a few months or a few years, it felt like that was most. And then after a while, it felt like maybe that was just some. And I had to step back into what's all now uh, to pick up my cross daily and follow him. Whatever all was, all probably means something different now. And so if you've, if you've realized that all is really most or maybe some and he's asking you for all, then repent and give him whatever he's asking for. And if you were at the first step, of all is you in realizing that Jesus was not just a great teacher. He was not just a prophet. That he was God in the flesh. And he came down here and lived a perfect life and died an unjust death. And, and nothing can explain where that body went. And nothing can explain these early believers that, that took over the Roman Empire in a few hundred years, not with the claim that he was a great teacher and a good guy, but that he rose from the dead because he was God himself. Surrender yourself to him. Give all of yourself to him. Humble yourself under his mighty hand. And know that at the proper time, he is going to give you everything you need in just the right time. In the next few minutes, as you're ready, you can, you can take communion um, using the cups that we have on our seats. This is the picture of what all is, that Jesus has given all to us. And what's right is to give all to him. It's the only way it works. Father, thank you for being the God of all.
grace. I pray this morning we're not left with guilt or shame over decisions we made or haven't made. Um, but we are left with a God who is gentle and humble of heart, who will give us rest for our souls by the work that you've done for us on the cross. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.